Before we get going fully, I do want to take a second and just thank our creative team who uh, kind of makes that liturgical kind of beginning part of our gathering happen. I don't know. Uh, I know a bunch of you weren't able to be at Revive this week, but man, if you missed Revive, I'm just like, promise I'm not guilting you when I say this, but you missed out. Oh my gosh. It was such, such a beautiful, refreshing experience. I, I just went home Wednesday night so refreshed in Jesus and so encouraged. And man, we just have an awesome team. The people who play instruments and click slides and, and all that stuff to, to serve you guys and glorify God. It's such a cool thing. Thank you, Chris, for leading that team. Thank you, everyone here who's on the creative team. Because this was a double week for you guys. You pulled double duty and, and, and put all that stuff together for us. So we thank you for that. Nice too. Yeah. It was really good. Yeah. The ladies' brunch was yesterday. It's a great week. Um, we are, I'm, I'm stoked to get into our text today for two reasons. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4 today. Colossians 4, starting in verse 7. Uh, I'm stoked for this for two reasons. The first one is we are finishing out the book of Colossians today. So we've been in Colossians since, what, September of last year? Maybe a hair earlier than that. I think right around then. Maybe, I don't know. Sometime some in the fall last year. It's been a journey. We've trekked through it. I feel like, I don't know if you guys are with me on this, but I just feel like God has met us in this text in some really refreshing and challenging and, and cool ways. And coming to the end of it really is just, just something about that. It's one of the things I love about Red Tree as a church where we make these massive commitments to just march through a book of the Bible verse by verse, and it takes forever and ever and ever. When Kim and I came to Red Tree originally, they were like a year and a half into the book of Romans, and we're in it like another two years after that. It was insane. So we're not quite, we're not quite at that level of trudging through something, but it's been a commitment to get through Colossians, and it's been, it's been really cool. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how this has been impactful for you guys necessarily, but man, this text has been challenging for me each and every time we step into it. It's such a beautiful book. It's so concise and so intense in how it states and how it challenges us with the truths of the gospel. The second reason I'm stoked to get into this text is because this is the kind of text that only ever gets turned into a sermon in a church like Red Tree, because this is the kind of text that when we're reading the book on our own, we skip over it because it's confusing and strange. Uh, uh, but, but again, I love that. I love that we're in a context where uh, we challenge ourselves to be, uh, to be challenged and to hear from the whole counsel of God's word. And I think I think we're going to be rewarded for that today. Because as much as this is kind of a weird text to, to build a sermon on, I really think God has something beautiful and challenging for us this morning. I think we're going to hear from him about uh, a really important truth, and that is this, guys. Um, your faith is never abstract. It's never abstract. In our text today, we're going to be reminded, I think powerfully so, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is always in the context of real people and real lives that are actually changed. Real stories. It's not, it's not this thing that we read about and it's this abstract, beautiful truth, this, this great, amazing philosophy to give us inner peace, but, but the gospel interacts with real human beings. 
And when we read about these stories of some saints, some, some brothers and a sister who came before us, I think it's going to remind us that in a space like this, we ourselves are part of the tapestry of God's story and God's kingdom. And every face we look at in this space is part of that same tapestry. So join me in reading this text, and then we'll pray and we'll jump into it. This is Colossians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles in the end of each row. We want to make sure uh, you have access to God's Word. If you're here this morning, by the way, and you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to snag one of those or talk to one of our elders and we'll get you one that's a little nicer. But starting in the seventh verse of the fourth chapter of the letter to the Colossians, we read this. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. I had to think about that one. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us today as we uh, think about this text, one that, if we're honest, uh, is the kind of text we tend to skim through as we read your word. We ask that you would just speak to us um, this morning in a way that our hearts need. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate the text to us. You, you tell us that, that, that as you disciple us, that you will convict us of our sin and you will remind us of things we've forgotten and you will teach us new truths about you. Spirit, we ask that you would do that ministry this morning. You would illuminate your word and you would disciple our hearts that we might leave here today having spent some time with you. We love you, Jesus. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, this is a weird text, but I'm into it. I hope you are too. I think this will be good. This, this, this will be good. And again, I, I feel like I've said this four times, but can we, all, we can all just collectively agree, right, that when we're on our little Bible for a year plan and we get to this part and we realize like, oh, this is just the part where Paul names a bunch of people, we're kind of like, oh, no, 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 no. And, and then we just kind of keep going, right? It's kind of like you give yourself the same permission you do when you're in your read the Bible in a year plan and you get to numbers and you're like, I'm really just going to read like one chapter in numbers and the rest I'm just going to kind of do one of these because it's just numbers, right? Like, this is kind of in that category. But, but I, man, 
as, as I took a few minutes and just kind of dug into this, it really was refreshing to me. And I think it will be for, for, for us together. And so I want to I I kind of frame it like this. This is going to feel a little detached. It's going to feel like we're jumping from idea to idea to idea because there's not a real flow to this text. Let me tell you the flow to this text. The letter of Colossians is over. It's done. He's finished the teaching, the whole purpose of the letter, right? Church in heresy, the apostle Paul's been called in to correct them. He expounds on the sufficiency and beauty and power and authority of Jesus. He challenges the heretics who are trying to claim authority in this church, and he teaches beautifully and challengingly on personal holiness and communal holiness and outward holiness, and then the letter is done. And at the end of the letter, he tacks on some greetings, which is what we just read. This is a snapshot into basically who's in the room when the letter was written. You see, letters weren't written in this day the way we write letters, like any of us write letters. The way letters (laughs) might hypothetically be written today if for some reason you wrote a letter. We think of someone sitting down at their desk and pulling out their stationery and writing a note by hand, but that's not how this went down. In this day, you would hire, or maybe you knew, but you would bring in a scribe, a professional writer, who would help you put together your letter, if it was something important like this, going to a group. And you wouldn't just sit and write it, it was actually a collaborative effort. And there were practical reasons as well as theological reasons for this. The practical reason was that scribes charged by the size of the paper. So the scribe would say, all right, tell me what you want to say, give me the gist of it. And they tell it, and you go, okay, I think that's going to be about a half a scroll. That's going to be this much money. You have that much money? And the person will go, hmm, can we get that down to a third of a scroll? And the scribe would be like, yeah, let's do this. And the scribe would help you edit it and get it down. This is, a really, like, this is just one of those weird things we never think about in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that Mark is shorter than the other three Gospels? You ever noticed that? That's because Mark is a one-scroll book, and the other three Gospels are two-scroll books which is why there are like four times as many ancient copies of Mark than any other gospel, because it was the cheapest to reproduce. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? (laughs) So Paul brings in a scribe in prison, and he's got his friends with them, and they're working on this letter, and it would have been a collaborative effort. Paul is the main thrust behind it, but as they're chatting and talking and writing outlines and the scribe is writing stuff, they would have been collectively editing and thinking and speaking to each other to put this work together, which I think there's something really beautiful about that. We don't think about that part often. We like to think of, right, like these famous Renaissance paintings and Paul's in this dramatic desk writing on this big, huge scroll, but that's not how it would have gone down. Paul is chained to a wall right now. He's not writing anything. He's chatting with his friends. And collectively, they're putting together this series of challenges and teachings and encouragements and rebukes for this church that's really hurting. And we get in our text this snapshot of who's in the room. And what I imagine, this just like shows some of my immaturity, but what I imagine when I read this text is like, you know like in an 80s sitcom? in the opening credits, right? It would show all the, like, the different people and they're always doing something really innocuous, like they're selling cookies at a bake-off and then all of a sudden they look at the camera and go. <laughs> and then it kind of like slowly pans in and then it goes to the next person and they're like riding their bike for some reason and it's a. 
That's what we get here. Paul like, goes through his 80s sitcom montage of who's in the room and names off everyone here. And most of these people, although we haven't heard of most of them, most of them actually have a larger role in the early church than we often think about. So what I'd like for us to do is kind of work our way down this list of names, and some of them we're going to breeze past, and one of them we're going to punt, because we're going to talk about it next week. But there's a couple that I, w- I want us to just to kind of get a snapshot of what we know about the story and the testimony of each of the people that Paul mentions here. And I, I think there's going to be some really good challenge and encouragement for us as we kind of reflect on some testimonies of some brothers and sisters in the faith who came before us. Sound good? Awesome. So first we get Tychicus. Tychicus? Tychicus? I don't know. There probably should be a seminary class teaching how to pronounce some of these names, but there isn't. So we have Tychicus. Tychicus is one of the most prominent New Testament church leaders that you've never heard of. I love this. We, we basically never talk about this guy, but he's mentioned the New Testament five times. He was a Macedonian, so he's from the general geographic region that both Ephesus and Colossians and Thessalonica, like those kind of major cities. He's, he's kind of a native of that area, and he came to Christ during a story you can read about in Acts 19, or Acts 18, when Paul had an extended stay in the city of Ephesus, and he preached the gospel and and helped uh, God work through him to build that church. And it started a revival because of the centrality importance of Ephesus as a city that spread throughout the rest of Macedonia. In fact, Acts says that the gospel was proclaimed throughout all of Macedonia because of the work God was doing in Ephesus. This is actually what birthed the Colossian church. We'll talk about Epaphras in a couple minutes. But he heard the gospel and accepted Christ during Jesus's ministry or during Paul's ministry in Ephesians, and he goes home. But we'll start with Tychicus. He's one of these guys. He meets Christ in this ministry, and he becomes almost immediately a compatriot of Paul. He joins him on his journeys, and he fills several really important roles over the course of Paul's ministry. We read about one of them here. Paul is in prison, and so he sends Tychicus to deliver this letter. The letter to the Colossians and the letter of Philemon were delivered by hand by Tychicus from Paul to that church and to that individual. And he brought with him this man, Onesimus, who's mentioned second in the letter, and we'll talk about him just briefly. But, but Tychicus played this important role. He also did this amazing work for Paul where he basically would go and he would tap guys out who needed a break. Paul would send him as kind of an interim pastor. And so you can read in First and Second Timothy and Titus, when Paul's shuffling some guys around, he'll send Tychicus to go, to go essentially fill the pulpit for Timothy so that Timothy can come visit him. And the same thing for Titus. This was a guy who stayed loyal to Paul and involved in his ministry till the bitter, bitter end. When Paul uh, was martyred under Nero's persecution, Tychicus was one of the few people who stood with him to the end and was martyred as well. An important dude in the early church who we never think about. And here's what I love about Tychicus' testimony that we get to be encouraged in today. You don't pursue the kingdom of God for recognition. We don't pursue the glory of God that we might be known and receive praise or adoration from people. 
You know, Paul very explicitly says, am I trying to please God or man? Tychicus is, is the story of this for us in the New Testament. This vital, vital leader and worker and authority in the New Testament church who you never heard of. And can I tell you what's amazing? He does not care that you've never heard of him <laughs> because his Jesus is pleased with him. And that is the root of his ministry. And, and as he experiences Christ now in eternity, the dude's not upset that he didn't get first billing in the New Testament, right? Because that's not what he was doing it for. It's not what he was pursuing it for. And I think that testimony stands to us as a challenge. It is so easy in our little kind of silo of Christian culture to pursue righteous activities or spiritual devotions or participation in church life because it looks good, <laughs> right? It's so easy to show up to this meeting or that event or commit yourself to this or, or read through this or do this spiritual discipline because when we talk about that stuff together, it's easy to be like, dang, I mean, that's, that's awesome. Like, you're really, you're really in love with Jesus. And that feels good. <laughs> that feels good to get adoration, to get attaboys from our friends and our family and our, our closest connections. But Jesus warned us about that. He warned us about that when he talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're not to pursue the kingdom because it makes us feel good or look good. And by the way, I would encourage you to say, that's a terrible, terrible, terrible motivation because you will be hated by way more people than you'll be congratulated by for pursuing Christ. It just doesn't work well. So Tychicus, in verse 9, we hear about uh, Onesimus, and I'm basically going to punt this because next week we're going to do uh, Philemon in one go, and that tells the story of this guy. But just to kind of wet our whistles for next week, Onesimus is a native of Colossae. He was uh, a slave of one of the leaders of the Colossian church. We talked about this a few weeks ago in the end of chapter three and beginning of chapter four, and we talked about Paul's instructions for the Christian household, right? But you have this guy, Philemon, who's a wealthy dude, a wealthy head of a family who hosts one of the house churches that makes up the Colossian church. And Onesimus is one of his bond servants. And we don't know the details of the story, but what it seems like is this dude was not a believer and he saw an opportunity in his master's kindness and he robbed him and ran away. And somehow in his uh, runaway state, he makes his way to Rome, which makes a ton of sense because that would have been one of the easiest places for a runaway slave to kind of reset their life and try and get away from the consequences of their actions. But in the way that only God does, he leads him smack dab into connection with Paul who preaches the gospel to him and he receives Christ and receives salvation. And then amongst his first discipleship lessons is now it's time to go confess your sin to your brother in Christ who you ran away from and robbed. And Paul sends him home. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that next week. So I, won't, I don't want to spoil it because it's going to be really interesting. But Onesimus is being sent back to the Colossian community alongside uh, Tychicus in these two letters that are going to be read to the church and read in the household of Philemon. 
Next, we get uh, Aristarchus in verse 10. Uh, Aristarchus uh, is, is, is this guy that Paul says he's a fellow prisoner and he says hi. And I just love that. He's just like, hey, Aristarchus is with me. He's in jail too. It's terrible. Anyway, he says hi. Moving on, uh, <laughs> which is great. Uh, but what we, know, we, do know, we don't know much about this cat, but we know something really interesting about him. Um, he's another Macedonian, another convert of this larger ministry that you can read about in Acts 18 and 19. And in fact, he became a leader in the Ephesian church. And when the terrible riot broke out in Ephesus, he was enough of a known leader in the church that he was one of two people that the rioters drug out of their home and brought into the Colosseum to kill. Uh, and so he is the dude who stood in the middle of hours of people chanting about Artemis and how great Artemis is, uh, waiting for the hammer to drop, and God supernaturally survived him in that. God supernaturally brought him out of that experience, uh, and somehow he manages to get himself arrested with Paul, uh, which is great. I love that this dude uh, has that kind of experience, that kind of close call, and he leaves it and is like, whew! All right, let's go right back to all these high-risk, illicit, illegal activities that we do as missionaries. And he ends up alongside Paul in chains. Um, man, we don't know a much about this dude, but can I just say what we know about him is actually really challenging and encouraging? Can I just say that maybe even in just that little snippet of a testimony of a brother in Christ who has endured immense suffering for the kingdom and yet he's sitting there in chains, helping write an encouragement to a church in desperate need. And he's able to just be like, hey, tell him I said hi. There's something about that. That I think it would be, I think it would just be good for us to stop for a minute and realize that the vast majority of our brothers and sisters pay a price for their faith. And yet somehow still find joy and life and fulfillment and purpose and meaning in that. I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not, I promise I'm not trying to guilt you for being an American Christian because it's just what it is. Like you didn't choose that part, right? But it's important to remember that we live in the most religiously free society ever, ever. And we have no clue of what the majority of our brothers and sisters throughout the world right now and throughout our history as a church experienced for the sake of Christ. And so, as we build up the discipline of praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters and lifting them up, I would encourage you to come back, come back to Aristarchus every now and then. Think about a dude chained to the wall and giving the thumbs up and saying hi to a church. There's something about that that I think is probably, probably just, probably just worth, worth our thoughts as we grow in our discipline of prayers for our brothers and sisters. Which, by the way, I know I'm saying this kind of implying it, but I do actually expect you to pray for the persecuted church. As your pastor, can we just say that? Can I just say that one black and white? You should be doing that. Let's do that. In verse 10, we read about John Mark. This is the guy in the list we know the most about. And so we'll camp here a minute because I think there's a really good encouragement for us here. Uh, John Mark, this is the same John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. 
Uh, we, we studied that a few years ago, spent some time in it. Uh, this is the same John Mark you can read about in Acts 13 who joined Paul on his first missionary journey. And this is where his story gets intriguing. So Paul and Barnabas are set aside by the church in Antioch to go on the first missionary journey recorded in church history. And they take this young man, John Mark, with them, and they travel to this island of Cyprus, and they preach the gospel. And the mission is, is like, it's, it's just black and white successful. People come to know Christ. Churches are planted. It's a powerful experience. But they face insane opposition physical opposition, social opposition, spiritual and demonic opposition. It's a crazy experience. You can read about it in Acts 13. And when it's time to go to the next city, Paul and Barnabas are all, all hyped up, like, let's go do this. And John Mark goes, I, I, I got to go home. And he heads back to Jerusalem. He bows out. And we don't fully know the story of what happened there, but we know that it was intense and we know that he bowed out after one stop. And when Paul and Barnabas come back from their first missionary journey and they begin preparing for their second missionary journey, Barnabas is like, bro, we gotta get John Mark back in on this action. We've gotta raise him up. And Paul says, heck no. He deserted us after one city. We're not doing that. And the disagreement gets so intense that Paul and Barnabas part ways for the rest of their ministries. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes and does missionary work, and Paul takes Silas and goes and does his second and third missionary journeys. Barnabas's in, or not Barnabas, John Mark's immaturity and his failure on the mission field in the heat of the moment is so intense that Paul says, bro, you're too immature, you're not coming with me, and leaves him behind. And yet, somehow, through the grace of God, this does not crush John Mark, it does not end his faith. It does not destroy his relationship to the church. It does not build up roots of bitterness in him. Somehow, on the other end of it, this dude becomes one of the most prominent leaders in the early church and becomes a dearly beloved friend and compatriot of Paul. How wild is that? That here we are later on in the story, and John Mark's one of the guys in the montage. Like You see him writing his letter, and he goes, John Mark. He's here in the room. In fact, if you read 2 Timothy, he was so precious to Paul that when Paul knew his time was coming, he begged that John Mark would be sent one more time, that he could see him once again. That's a, that's a deep and intimate kind of friendship when you are at your deathbed and you're like, look, I've only got a few more weeks. Timothy, I want to see you and bring John Mark with you. That's beautiful. And yet... Look where he came from. What I love about John Mark's testimony is that it reminds, I mean, think about this. God used this dude to pen a gospel. That's crazy. Not just a gospel, by the way, the first written gospel. That's the earliest one the church had access to. And God used him to do that. In a time of one of the most intense persecutions Christianity has ever experienced, God used a former coward and runaway and abandoner to pen his gospel to the church. Come on. Beloved, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. If there is breath in your lungs right now, God is not done with you. Your story is not over. 
Your failure, your sin, your immaturity, your wrong decisions, they don't get to define you because we serve the God of the universe and he is in the business of changing lives. He's in the business of changing hearts. He turns a young, immature runaway to a gospel writer and a church leader. Come on. If you're here right now and you're still moving, God's not done with you. And he does not define you by your failures. He defines you by his son. Come on. And then we get JJ, Jesus Justice, verse 11. I call him JJ because it's just weird to call him Jesus. Uh, We don't know anything about this cat. This is the only time JJ gets mentioned in the Bible. And all we know about him is that he's hanging out with Paul and he's Jewish. (laughs) Uh, And he helped write Colossians apparently. So I don't know. He was comforting to Paul. um, And he's cool, I guess. That, see, that was eisegesis. I don't know if JJ was cool. He may have been a total nerd. (laughs) In verse 12, we get Epaphras. And this guy we know a little bit about. We've already looked at Epaphras in the beginning of the book. Epaphras is essentially one of the main leaders of the Colossian church, and he's the instigator behind this whole book. Epaphras is another one of these guys who met Jesus through Paul's Ephesian ministry in Acts 18, and he went home to his city of Colossae and and on some level uh, to the city of Laodicea. We don't fully know his connections to Laodicea, but Colossae and Laodicea were really close to each other. Think like Think like De Pere and Baldwin, right? They're close to each other. And he, he, pre- he preached the gospel and planted a church and led out in that church. I love this. Because Epaphras, can we just like say this bluntly for a minute? He's nobody. He's just some dude who happened to be in Ephesus and he heard the gospel. But I think he so beautifully embodies what we talk about as a church. We said this last week and we say this often. But Epaphras knew in his heart of hearts that he was the missionary God was sending to his home and his community and his friends and his family. And so he brought the gospel home with him and he proclaimed the gospel and God used it to plant a church. Come on. And he loved that church so much that when they started to get bad and when they rejected his authority and they rejected their history and they rejected the gospel and they were pursuing heresy, he didn't give up. He didn't hate them. He didn't run off to Laodicea and go, fine, I'll just go to the cool church that likes me. No, he went and he fought for this church. And he went to Paul and he said, help me correct this church, please. Please help me. And I love, I love what Paul says about Epaphras here. In fact, I'm going to reread this to us. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. This boy struggles in his prayers. His heart is broken for this church. And he labors for the people of this church. Beloved, we need to stop 
and think about this for a minute. Epaphras is not, you, we don't get like the apostle excuse here. It's not like Epaphras is some super Christian who had a vision of Jesus that knocked him off a donkey. It's not like he sat with Jesus like during his ministry and walking around doing miracles. This is just a dude like you and me who was on a business trip and he heard the gospel preached. Come on. And he goes home and he preaches the gospel and God plants a church. Beloved, I don't say this to guilt us or to beat us over the head. I say this because we need to think about it. How many churches are waiting to be planted by the missionaries God has equipped and sent? How many churches are waiting to be birthed and come into existence out of you and I's testimony and our story and our family and our friends and our network and our neighborhood and our workplaces? Beloved, you're the missionary. And if that's weighty for you, if that's like, I'm just, I'm just not there, okay. Okay. We can get there. But can we start with this? And do you labor in prayer? Do you labor in prayer? Think about the people God has put in your life. And I, look, I'm just saying this because it's me too. You are surrounded by desperate, desperate need. There are people in your home, in your extended family, in your work, in your neighborhood, in your hobbies, in your areas of interest, in all the circles where you run, there are people in desperate need of Christ. Where if there is no supernatural intervention in their life, the trajectory of their life is going to put them face to face with the wrath of a righteous God. He's put you in their story, and you in their life. And you pray for these people. We can start there, yeah? We can pray for the lost and the hurt and the lonely and the marginalized in our lives, yeah? Because Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Beloved, I, I hope and I pray that we are becoming the kind of church that wears ourselves out with our prayers. That our prayers become a struggle. That we bring that same hopeless case and hopeless person to God over and over and over and over, day by day and week by week and month by month and year by year because we actually long for them to find life and salvation and freedom in him. Beloved, we worship a God who can raise the dead. He can save your cousin or your friend or your coworker. I promise. Hope and I pray that we are a people who labor in our prayers. I gotta keep moving, I'm taking too long. We got Luke in verse 14. You've probably heard of Luke. He wrote a couple books, Luke and Acts. We're actually gonna jump into Acts this fall. Uh, after we get through the summer, it's gonna be a really cool time. Um, there's not a huge amount I wanna say here other than just can we stop for a minute and reflect on the fact that in this room right now, you have Paul and John, Mark, and Luke in the same room. 
That's most of your New Testament right there. <laughs> Seriously. That's Mark, Luke, Acts, and all the Ian's books. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I love that. There's nothing to that other than just, I think that's really crazy. They were all in the same room. Uh, verse 13, uh, and this is the last one I really want to spend some time on, uh, and, and then we'll kind of start to wrap this up. We hear about this guy named Demas, and we know basically nothing about Demas, but what we know about him is really heartbreaking. So Demas is this guy who gives greetings, who's in the room, who's in the work with Paul. And the only other time we hear about him is at the end of Paul's life, in his deepest hour of need and persecution, he reports with a broken heart to Timothy that Demas has left the faith and abandoned them. It's heartbreaking. He reports this to, to his friend who he cares about, and he says, Demas has fallen in love with this present world, and he has abandoned us. Oh, what a, what a heart-wrenching story to put that next to Stories like John Mark and Tychicus and the other stuff we're talking about. But we need to hear it. This, this illuminates, and, and listen, I'm going to be way faster here than the weightiness of this topic uh, actually deserves. And so I'm going to encourage you, if this is something that pricks you or messes with you, to, to grab me or one of the other pastors and we can talk about this. But this pricks at how we understand the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Because Paul seems to imply when he writes to Timothy that he doubts whether or not Demas ever knew Jesus. And there's something just painful about that. <clears throat> Beloved, if you are in Christ, you must endure. And through the power of Christ, you will endure. And so I just want to say this because we don't really have time to dig into it. But if you're in this space and you really wrestle with the security of your salvation, will you please invite a pastor into that? Will you please not be in that on your own? Because, beloved, I have wonderful news for you. I mean, listen, there are some of us, let, let's be honest, there are some of us who maybe are a little more in the Demas camp, and we like to look back on some spiritual milestone or spiritual experience and hold on to that as some form of security. And I'll just tell you guys, like, that's not your security. Christ is your security and his sufficiency and his reign and his present power in your life is your security and he is the one who will cause you to endure. Christ secures your salvation. Not an Ebenezer you look back to, not a spiritual experience or some kind of like show or a baptism or a, a ritual or anything like that. It is Christ. And there are some of us who need to be hit over the head with that truth and realize that a ritual we went through a couple decades ago does not gain us salvation and eternity with Christ. It is Christ who does that. But the, the reality is in a space like this, there's probably way more of us who just really struggle with trusting Christ and resting in his sufficiency. And if you are someone who is just plagued by doubts and Satan uses that to pick at you and defeat you and beat you up, please don't wallow in that alone. Invite us into, into that with you. Invite your GC or your pastors into that with you. Because Christ is powerful and he is sufficient. And he will, he will cause you to endure. Amen? We hear about Nympha. You got to mention Nympha because she hosted a church and that's baller. And then you get Archippus, 
And this is where we'll end out our time. Because I think this is amazing. Archippus was almost certainly the adult son of Philemon, who was a leader in the Colossian church, hosted one of the house churches in Colossae. And, and from what we know, Paul basically doesn't know this guy. But we get this amazing line. <laughs> this is verse 17. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I love this. Because the image you get here is that, is that Epaphras shows up and he starts telling Paul all about this church. Paul's never been to Colossae. And he's telling him about all the key players and their story and their history and the leaders and all these different people. And at some point, they land on Archippus, this adult, this adult son who lives in one of the homes that hosts the church. And, and something in this dude's story sparks Paul to say, hey, tell Archippus to obey what God told him to do. Come on. Tell him to fulfill that ministry. And I got to be honest, if it weren't for a couple, just God-ordained, wise, calm authorities in my life who at some point said, hey, Sam, come on. You know what God called you to do. Be obedient to that. I don't know if I'd be here right now. And I love that we get a little image of that. And the truth in it that I think we need, and I think this is where we're going to land today, is this. You don't get to work out your faith alone. You, you just don't get to. The kingdom of God is always real people. And it's real people in community, in each other's business, in each other's messes. If you're in this space and it is just evident that God is using you for something great and he has put convictions and challenges and direction on your life and you're avoiding it, I got amazing and terrible news for you. People are going to talk to you about it. <laughs> if you're going to Archippus in here, and God's going to give you a ministry, and you're going to avoid fulfilling it, we're going to challenge you to do that. Hey, hey, fulfill the ministry the Lord gave you. Come on, let's do this. We're in this together. I love that. I also hate that. But, but, but I love that. I love that we don't do this thing alone. I love that our faith is not abstract. It's not a philosophy. It's not something we mentally assent to. I mean, yeah, like there are facets of that, but our faith is, is expressed through real, living, breathing people with real faces and real stories and real histories, and each and every one of them is important and precious to our God, and he is working in their lives with the same level of intensity and detail and love and persistence that he is working in our lives, and he intermingles us for the purpose of his glory and the advancement of his kingdom, and that's just pretty great. It's just awesome. We're not doing this thing on our own. And beloved, if you are trying to do this thing on your own, you're missing it. You're missing it. We're in this together. We're in this together. One body, one church. Sure, all sorts of different buildings, all sorts of different gatherings. There was one in Hierapolis, there was one in Laodicea, there was one in Colossae, and each one of those represented probably four to six house churches. But man, one body, one work, one kingdom that we have all been drawn into, and we all get to be in each other's lives, and be in each other's kitchens, and be each other's encouragers, and I just love that. 
So here's what I want to end with today. The kingdom of God that you pursue in obedience as you grow in your faith, as you look at everything Paul taught here, the sufficiency and excellency of Jesus, the call on your life to personal holiness, the call on the church to communal holiness, the intensity and weight of the call to the church to outward holiness. As you wrestle through and engage all of those things in your faith, it will always involve real people with real faces and real stories all around you whose lives are just as messy as yours and who are just as precious in the sight of God as you are. And that means that it will be insanely painful and difficult. It just does. It means that you will hurt people and they will hurt you. And things won't go as smoothly and easily as a storybook. It means it will cost you it will cost you putting your neck out there and risking intimacy and vulnerability when people choose to wrong you and gossip about you and sin against you. It will mean choosing forgiveness and vulnerability and pursuing Christ and pursuing community and pursuing his kingdom over and above the sacrifice and pain and cost of it over and over for the rest of your life. It's a really beautiful and a really intense call. But beloved, let me end with this. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's so amazing to be in this together. I want to wrap our time up by reading a passage that's famous to most of us probably from Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I could keep reading, but he immediately, immediately transitions from this choice to sacrifice yourself for the kingdom to talking about the plurality and the hugeness and the body of the church. Beloved, if you give yourself to this work that is the kingdom of God, it will cost you a lot. You will have to put your body, mind, and soul up on the altar as a sacrifice. But man, it's worth it. Man, it's the only life worth living. It's the life you were built for. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come back up. I want to give some space for us to process this. And, and listen, we, and we do this every week. And so I just want to encourage you, if this is your home right now, if, this is, if, if Red Tree is your home church, like don't, don't let this be the space where you check out and start thinking about what park you're going to eat lunch in today because it's so beautiful. Like, can we... Can we finish this out for a couple minutes? I know there's like no one here today, but I just, uh, I just want to encourage you to finish this out with us today. Guys, we, and we spent a few minutes in Colossians, right? And I'm guessing 
we weren't all here for everyone, every passage. It's totally cool. I mean, I was, but it's cool that you guys weren't. I'm just kidding. But we finished this out today. And there's a lot in this. I feel like there's a lot of stuff God's been challenging us with over the last six, seven months, speaking out of his word. So I want to encourage you guys to take a few minutes to do this. Find some way for you to be alone with Jesus. I want you to get your Bible in front of you. I want you to look at this book. And man, if you were just here today and this is like your first Colossians verse, that's totally cool. You can hang out right in that, in that text we were in. But I want you to just let your eyes skim over this text. I want you to think about the different stuff God has been saying out of this. Jesus is sufficient. Nothing you add to him gives you anything. You are called by him, so be holy. You are a family. The family is holy. The world around you is lost and dying, so beloved, be holy. And the church is always people. Always made up of people. Look at that. Give a few minutes for the Spirit to stir your heart and remind you of stuff. And can we just sit with Jesus in the beauty of this text for a few minutes? Can we be confessional with him? Maybe you need to find some space to pray over the conviction he gave you two months ago that you've been avoiding dealing with. Or maybe there was something in one of these testimonies that sparked you and struck you and reminded you of pieces of your own faith and areas of your own immaturity. And maybe you just need to bring that to Jesus in confession and safety. And maybe you need someone else to pray over you out loud. We have two prayer counselors available. Matt and Kim are going to be around the room. If you, just need, if you guys could stand up so people could see you. If you just need a human being to pray over you out loud, you grab one of them or grab me or grab one of the pastors. We'd love to help. Just help be in this with you. But guys, we just want to, I just want to challenge us to spend a few minutes with Jesus before our lives get loud and fast again. Before you catch up on missed texts and calls and figure out your lunch and dinner and beautiful day plans and jump back into your week with work and assignments and all those things, let's finish out our time here quiet and slow and with Jesus. And once we've stewed in this for a few minutes, maybe till we're a little uncomfortable, I'll come back up and pray for us and we'll finish out our response time. Sound good? All right, beloved, meet with Jesus and do what you need to do.